Good evening. <clears throat> Good evening and welcome to Christ's Covenant Church and Merry Christmas. My name is Marshall Clement. I'm one of the elders here and we welcome you all, but especially if you're visiting, we're especially glad to see you and uh, want to take the opportunity to share a couple of things with you before we start our worship. We are um, going to do things differently next week. You may have seen in the bulletin that we have a Christmas, one Christmas, um, we'll have morning and evening service, but it'll only be one service in the morning, so don't show up at uh, 10.30. Uh, there'll be no Sunday school. We'll have, I, I do show up at 10.30, don't show up at 9, I should say. <laughs> so uh, one service next Sunday morning, Christmas Day, on the Lord's Day. And um, so also, if you're visiting with us, we would love to have you um, fill out one of the cards in the pew that uh, you can fill out and show us, tell us a little bit about you. And if you'd like to get our weekly covenanter, uh, you can note that in there. Or if you have any prayer requests, we'd love to pray for you. The elders pray weekly, uh, both individually and every Sunday morning for these things. That, or pray, praise things. We love praising the Lord for answers to prayer. So, uh, also, for all of us, a good reminder that on the back of our bulletins in the evening, prayers for the people uh, are listed here, and things that, to take you through the, not only the things of our church, but for our missionaries and so forth. So, uh, a couple of things there. Uh, let us now uh, reflect or, or lay aside all the cares of the world, maybe what we're thinking about for the coming busy week, and let's now prepare our hearts to worship Almighty God. We're gathered here this evening for the worship of Almighty God, and if you're visiting again, we welcome you. We're glad to have you here, and we hope and pray that as we draw near to the Lord this evening, He will draw near to you and lift up the light of His shining face upon you and bless you. If you would please, let's stand together as we call into God's presence for worship. Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who minister by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the sanctuary and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we extol your name, O Lord, our God and our King. We would bless your name forever and ever. Every day we would bless you. We would praise you forever and ever. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Your greatness is unsearchable. 
We are not those, O God, who hasten after other gods, who have eyes but cannot see, and ears but cannot hear, and hands but cannot help, nor can they hurt, and lips but cannot speak, and their throat can't even make a sound. The God of Jacob is not like these. The maker of all is he. And we come into your presence to worship you, to bow down, O Lord, to pray that you will look away from all of our sins and look only at the face of Jesus, our righteousness, and receive us for his sake, O God, and fill us up with his spirit, with his wisdom, with his holiness, with his righteousness, his justice, his goodness, his truth, and draw near to us, O God, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's remain standing this evening as we worship God and we'll sing to God's praise our opening selection, hymn number 221, one of the most hauntingly beautiful Christmas carols, Lo, High, A Rose, Air Blooming. Let us worship God together.
If you would, please keep standing if you're able, and let us now confess our faith together from the famous Heidelberg Confession. Uh, we're talking tonight about Christ's death. It relates to Christmas in that that is why he came. To His purpose was to die. Lots of uh, deep questions here about death. And let us now read responsively. I'll do the bold. You, we all answer in the, non, in the light. So question 40. Why did Christ have to suffer death? Because God's justice and truth require it. Nothing else could pay for our sins except the death of the Son of God. Why was he buried? His burial testifies that he really died. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Our death is not a payment for our sins, but only a dying to sins and an entering into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? By his power, our old man is crucified, put to death, buried with him, so that the evil desires of my flesh may no longer rule us, but that instead we may offer ourselves as a sacrifice of thanksgiving to him. Why does the creed add, he descended into hell? To assure me during attacks of deepest dread and temptation that Christ my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from hellish anguish and torment. Amen. You may be seated. Our New Testament scripture reading tonight is from Romans, the last chapter, chapter 16. It's been wonderful going through this great treatise of Paul's Magna Carta. It's very rich in doctrine. It's why many of us love it so much. It's doctrinally rich, and yet... It's very undoctrinal here in this last chapter. Paul is uh, basically showing his pastoral side, how he, he loves these people he's saying goodbye to in the letter. It's very touching in, in contrast to the rich doctrine. It shows Paul's very personal, tender heart toward his, his people, that, his friends that he's writing to. So here now, the Word of God as we find it in Romans 16. I commend you to our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Shendre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only... I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epaphnetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Amph. Leatus, my beloved in the Lord, 
Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Statius. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphania and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asnicritus, Philegion, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with him. Feet Philogus, Julia, Nerissus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal you to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent, as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sassipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greet you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cortus, greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Christ Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, you know, I don't know if um, in heaven... They can look down and hear us on earth. I, I kind of think not. But if that's the case, I've got probably some, Jim also, some apologizing to do for butchering these guys' names and gals' names. Um, so let us stand again, if you're able, and let us sing God's, to God's praise, taking out the small ARP Psalter and turn to number 91 as we sing the gospel into each other's hearts. Who with God most high finds shelter?
Amen and amen. If you would, please turn with me again in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Psalms and Psalm 119, verse 57. Chet in the Hebrew. With the Word of God open before us, let's pray together. Sovereign and everlasting God, we come to your word again this evening. We bless you, O God, for the Scriptures breathed out as they are by God Almighty. So our breath becomes visible on a cold morning. So your breath becomes visible in this book, O God. And it is profitable for doctrine. It teaches us truth. It it, it straightens out the chaos in our hearts and in the world, O Lord, and shows us right from wrong, light from darkness, wisdom from folly, the way to heaven from the way to hell. It's good also, O God, for reproof. It tells us to stop doing certain things that are harmful to our bodies and to our souls, and it corrects us. It sets, up on, it sets us up in the right way, O God, and it gives maturing instruction that we might grow up in your ways and be men and women and boys and girls after your heart. And this evening, Father, we turn to your Word again. We pray for the help, for the illumination of the Spirit of the Lord Christ, that we might be filled with His glory and conformed more and more to His image. That we might put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. And we offer these prayers tonight, O God, in Christ's name. Amen. This is the Word of God, verse 57. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten. And do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I'm a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love, your chesed. Teach me your statutes. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. Well, our sermon this evening has to do with the desire of a healthy soul to have more and more of God in their heart and in their life, so much of God in their heart and life that there is no room for anything else. He says, the Lord is my portion. I think he's referring there to the, Israel, to, the, to the Levite. If you remember in the Promised Land, 
Um, every member of God's nation, Israel, had their own portion in the land. They had an allotment given to them that was passed down from father to son through the ages. It was their land, their little piece of the promised inheritance of God. That was true for all of Israel except for the tribe of Levi. The Levites had no allotment in the land. The Lord was the portion of their inheritance. If you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 16, you'll see David riff on that idea at greater length. Um, I'm going to read this in the New American Standard. I memorized this in, Psalm, in the American Standard. I can't read any other version. It just messes with my memory, so forgive me. But Psalm 16, David says, Preserve me, O Lord, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones, the godly ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places, the lines of my inheritance, right? But, I, but he doesn't want a piece of land. He wants God. As an, if, if you take everything else away, David is saying, and give me God alone, then I can say the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me because He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My glory, the weightiness of my life rejoices. When all I have is God, I have all that I need. And that portion exists beyond the grave. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Shaul, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore, and so forth. Okay? That's a beautiful picture of what it's like to have God as your portion. To have a friend who's with you, somewhere to run and hide. To have all that you need in life. I have no good besides you. To have a constant counselor and guide. In the darkness of the night watches when most men sit awake and worry, the psalmist has a guiding friend, a shepherd, to lead him through thick and through thin a foundation beneath his feet, a rock that's stable, and a hope even on the edge of the grave. And all of that is kind of summarized in that phrase, the Lord is my portion, in Psalm 119, 57. Now, perhaps you're a cynic this evening, right? And you're saying to yourself, oh, okay, so what you're really saying is, you know, the psalmist wants to be a monk, you know, sitting in some kind of cubicle and his Bible, and he wants nothing else. No, that's not what he's saying, okay? Um, even in the Garden of Eden, Adam had a need for his wife Eve. He had a perfect man, a perfect relationship with God, in a perfect environment, and God said there's something not good about him. He needed Eve to complete the puzzle right? And so we, the pleasures of this life, the good things of this life are gifts of God, and 
We enjoy God in them. That's the point. It's what Augustine says, and he, he sums it up so well. He loves thee too little, who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. He loves thee too little, who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. Why do you love food? Because it's the gift of God. Why do you love your children and delight in their hugs and kisses? Because they're the gifts of God to you. Why do you love your husband, your wife, and the delights of the marriage bed? Because it's God's gift to you. He designed it to thrill your soul and your body. Why do you love sport and the exhilaration of exercise? Or maybe you did years ago, but why? Because it's God's gift to you. Like um, Eric Little, God made me for a purpose, but He also made me fast. And when I run, I feel His pleasure, right? He loves thee too little, who loves anything else together with thee, which He loves not for thy sake alone. In one sense, for those who have their head on straight, there is no more natural desire in all the world. Look at the last verse. The earth, is, the earth, O Lord, is full of Your steadfast love. It's full of Your loving kindness. The earth is a treasure trove of God's love. Think of all the good things in this world, the glory of the starry heavens, and just looking up at them and seeing the majesty of the, of the moon and the stars. Think of the giggle of a baby when you hold him or her in your arms, and they come to that three-month phase when their personality really begins to come out, and they can see their hands, and they're laughing and giggling. Think of the wagging tail of a dog when he greets his master, and what joy it brings to you. Think of the taste of a North Carolina apple. Not the kind you get in Walmart that come from some God-forsaken place that taste like an old turnip, but the really good, juicy apples from the mountains. Think of the joys of true friendship. Having a brother or sister alongside you as your friend through thick and thin. A thousand other things. The grandeur of the mountains. The trickle, the happy gurgle of a mountain stream when you're hiking. All of those things are echoes of the ingenious love of God, and the healthy soul enjoys God in all of them. Now, if God is the author of all these things, if He designed them, He made them, He gifted them to you, the real question is, if you're a cynic, why would you want your life to be full of anything else? If the blessings of God are that good, why wouldn't you want the God who authored those blessings? That's the real question. It says an awful lot about your soul if you only want the gifts of God but have no time for the giver, doesn't it? But I'm not here to talk about you this evening if you're a cynic. I'm here to talk about the healthy soul and what it looks like and what it feels like to have the Lord as your portion. the music, you might say, of a healthy soul. What's it like? 
What's it feel like? And maybe even how do you get there? What are the stepping stones? When you're praying, Lord, I want to, be, I want to get to a place where I can say, I want you and nothing else in my life. And I want to enjoy all of your gifts as your gifts and to enjoy you in them, right? First of all, obedience will become your chief commitment. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep, to guard your words. I'll guard them. They're my treasure. The things in life we look after, we treasure. Um, when I'm at the gym and I take my wedding ring off because I don't want this is this is actually my Catherine's grandfather's wedding ring. My wedding ring broke because I was lifting weights one day and the the weight it was a uh, um, it was it it cracked under the weight I was lifting and um, so I take it off now at the gym, but I put it somewhere safe because I don't want to lose it, right? And we guard things that are precious, and the psalmist guards the commandments of God. He's concerned for them. He's not like Baxter, my dog, who eats my dinner when I'm not watching. He really does. Um, No, the psalmist isn't just obedient when people watch him. He's he's obedient because it's God's Word, and he's concerned not, not with what he can get away with. He's concerned not with what he wants to do, or even his reputation for being religious like the Pharisees, he's really concerned to do what God said. So like the Sabbath day, for example, right? what does the Sabbath day mean? And we're not concerned about it in some nitpicky way as if, you know, if I don't get it all right, I'll be in trouble. No, it's God's Word, it's God's law, and I want to obey Him. He's my Father, He's been so good to me, and and, and, and it's the commitment of a Christian to obey God. If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. So, a person who has the Lord as his portion, his chief commitment is obedience, because he loves God. Is that your chief commitment? Or maybe you've, maybe you've taken your eyes off God. You take your eyes off God, and the law becomes drudgery, and you start trying to find ways of kind of, you know, nitpicking your way around it, like the Pharisees. And that'll take you to a dark place, like the Pharisees on Passover night who wouldn't enter Pilate's house because they didn't want to get the dust of a Gentile's house on their shoes. But they weren't concerned that they're about to get the blood of God's own Son on their hands. How blind they were. They thought they were so fastidious, so, so obedient. They defined everything down to the last nickel not that they might keep the law of God, but they might find ingenious ways of breaking it. So, if you're a young person here, maybe you're dating somebody, right? The issue is not, right, well, how, how far can you go in your physical relationship before you get married, right? Well, the legalist or the moralist might say, well, you know, I, I don't want to offend my girlfriend or my boyfriend. I don't want, I don't want to kind of offend their conscience. That, that's maybe one standard. Or maybe we, we, we don't want to have an unplanned pregnancy. That would be really embarrassing. So, we, we, we'll not have sex, right? So, draw the line there. But that's a very self-centered view, right, of what, you know, or if we go too far, they'll have to explain to the next girl or boy I date how far I went with them, and that'll be embarrassing. So, we'll just keep it really safe. And that, that's not a Christian way of thinking, the issue is, how far does God want me to go in the relationship? What pleases Him? What glorifies Him? This is the will of God, your, 
that you abstain from sexual immorality, that you know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification, holiness, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. How we use our sexual organs is a measure of whether we know God or not. Right? Obedience matters. Obedience is your chief commitment when the Lord is your portion. Then secondly, when the Lord is your portion, God's favor is your chief hunger, your chief desire. The most important thing in your life will be pleasing God. He says, I entreat your favor with all my heart. And that's interesting. The word entreat means it actually is from, built from the Hebrew word of feeling sick. That doesn't sound very positive. Actually, it does. What he's saying is, I want your face, your smile so badly, Lord, I feel sick. Like David in Psalm 32, when God, when God is, when his conscience smote him after Bathsheba, he said, um, when I kept silent about my sin, when I refused to confess my sin, my vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. David was conscious, he was out of fellowship with God, and he had no happiness in that. He felt sick because of it. And it's, it's actually, I entreat your favor. The Hebrew is, I entreat your face with all my heart. Favor's the idea, but the face is actually, it's much more personal. Grace isn't just God giving, himself, giving you a bye, or, or, or um, the favor of God isn't just about God putting you in the, in the good boy's box or the good girl's box. It's about his face. It's a personal relationship. I entreat your face with all my heart. Now, the psalmist knows that he doesn't deserve the smiling face of God. You know that we bless, the Lord bless you, keep you the Lord lift up the light of his shining countenance. It's, it's basically the idea of when God looks at you, he smiles warmly. That's, that's the idea. But the psalmist knows he doesn't deserve God's smile, but he hopes for it, not according to his own works, but according to God's gracious promise. I entreat your favor. The word actually is face, yes. Be gracious to me. That's, it's, it's the word, um, it, it's grace. It's undeserved favor. Be gracious to me, O Lord. Well, because I've worked really hard to earn it. No, according to your promise. It's his only plea, the promise of God. You've promised, Father. I don't deserve it, but you've promised it, even to those who don't deserve it. He wants the favor of God. Is the favor of God your chief hunger? Are you concerned when you're out of fellowship with Him? Is that even a category in your soul? Lots of people are quite happy going to church, singing songs, especially Christmas songs, it kind of feels good, but they're not really concerned about God. Is God pleased with them? Are they, are they, in a, are they walking in the grace of God? May the grace of God be with you. It's like, it's the same kind of idea, you know, in, in Star Wars, they said, may the force be with you, right? And it's kind of this amoral thing. Well, there's a dark side and a bright side of the force, I suppose, but still, it's this kind of like this sense of power with you. Well, for the Christian, it's not the power of God, but it's the favor of God with him. 
wherever he goes. Not the last word in Titus, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, on your side. It's that wonderful thing that God is for me. All of His attributes are for me. His being, His wisdom, His power, His holiness, His justice, His goodness, His truth are all for me, not against me. There's not an atom of God's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable being. I know there are no atoms in God, you understand, but the smallest part, not the tiniest part of God in some far distant recess of the universe that's hostile to the Christian. And the psalmist longs for that, and he pleads for that according to God's promise, because I think he instinctively knows he doesn't deserve it, and yet God has promised it. Does that ring a bell with you? Obedience is your chief commitment when God is your portion. Favor, God's favor is your chief hunger. Thirdly, sin is your chief complaint. Lord, tis my chief complaint that my love is so weak and faint, the hymn writer said. Verse 59, when I think, when I consider, when I think deeply on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. Literally, I repent my feet to your testimonies. It's a beautiful picture here of repentance, the parts of repentance. It's intellectual. It involves the mind. We think about it, which is why, like this morning's sermon, you know, the the healthy soul gets deeper than emotions. Um, It gets deeper than emotions. It doesn't emote. It thinks. Um, it's a thoughtful soul. There's intellectual aspects. We think about our lives. And it's also personal. I think about my ways. I don't think about your sins or the sins of the world so much, but I'm thinking about my ways, my own individual ways of sinning, wandering away from God, breaking His commandments, compromising, Where do I slip up? Where do I fall down? Intellectual, personal. It's also purposeful. I turned. I turned. I repented. I was going the wrong way, but I turned. And it's practical. I turned my feet. Remember in Haggai, um, chapter 1, is it, whenever the people of God have come back from the exile and the temple is kind of a bit of a hovel, uh, a bit of a shed. They kind of half built it and stopped and began building their own houses. And God says, is it right for you to live in your ivory palaces whenever my house lies desolate? Remember? Set your heart upon your ways. And then God says, take an axe, go up that mountain, and cut down a tree and start building my house. It's practical. It's as practical as building, buying an axe and chopping down a tree. Practical. It's just practical when you're on Instagram on the search page, which can be a dangerous place to be, and there's some immodest picture, and you, you hold it down, and you say, I don't want to see any more of this, and you'll find less of those pictures popping up in your feed. It's practical. I turned my feet 
and it's scriptural. I turned my feet to your testimonies. Not the standards of the world, not what do men think, not what I can get away with, but I turned my feet to your legal declarations of what is right and what is wrong. And notice there's speed here. Verse 60, I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. There's a saying that used to go around some years ago when we had young children. Delayed obedience is disobedience. I've heard it too. Delayed disobedience. I hasten. As soon as I feel my conscience bothered, the psalmist says, I take action. I don't just leave the crud in my soul to accumulate like an old oven that's never been cleaned, and you can't even see through the glass in front of it anymore. I take action. Like Churchill's famous motto, action this day. I hasten. And do not delay. And his obedience, his repentance is not just um, situational. Um, verse 61, though the cords of the wicked ensnare me. And the idea here, I think, is he's being surrounded by wicked people, and wicked people are not axe murderers. Wicked people are people who think life can be found far away from God, like Psalm 18, 21. Um, um, I have not wickedly departed from your law, David said. And the word depart, you remember, is not in that verse. It's just, I did not wickedly away from your law. In David's mind, wickedness is anything that takes you away from God, anything. And it might be the smallest thing, but if you, if you, if you, if you get your trajectory wrong by a, 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 a 1% on a journey to Hawaii, by the time you get to where you think Hawaii should be, it won't even be on the horizon, right? And David says, when I'm around people who are not concerned with finding life in God, it's a dangerous place to be because they can, they can have a dulling effect upon you. Their jokes can corrupt you. Their peer pressure can influence you. And David says here, even when I'm with the wicked, and I feel wrapped up by what they want, you know, I'm being pulled, they've, they've, they've lassoed me, or we say lassoed, but I think you say lassoed, but they've, they've wrapped me with the rope and they're pulling me away from God. Even then, David says, I do not forget your law. His obedience, his repentance is not situational. So what's it like to have God as your portion? Obedience is your chief commitment. God's favor is your chief hunger. Sin is your chief complaint. And fourthly, worship is your chief joy. At midnight, I rise to praise you. When most men are sleeping, David rises to worship. It's supernatural. Why? Because of your righteous rules. Your rules are just right. And again, that's the word mishpat, um, isn't it, in 62? Yeah, mishpat, um, which is God's judgments. It's not just His rules, like God gives you a list of rules to obey. No, it's, it's His rule. It's, it's His providential rule. Judgment, I think the New American Standard has, which is probably a better translation. But even that sounds negative. It's much more His providential rule. 
the decisions of one who's in charge. And the psalmist is thrilled by God's righteous providence, like Polycarp when he's being martyred. He has done me no wrong. I, I won't depart from him. And the psalmist is affirming the goodness of God's providence here. And it, it gets him out of bed at night time to worship. I remember one of the Scottish um, covenanters, and I forget his name now, um, but he was found, his, his wife would find him out of bed in the middle of the night praying for his church um, on the cold stone floor of a Scottish winter, and his wife would scold him and tell him to get back into bed, and he'd say, love, he said, I have 2,000 souls for whom I'm responsible, and I know not how it goes with them for good or ill, many of them, and so I, I must pray for them, and it's very convicting. When you wake up at night, what do you do? Do you reach for your phone, check the news, go to Instagram, Facebook, read political articles, or do you worship? It's, it's a healthy soul. It's a beacon here of what spiritual health looks like. Worship will become more and more of your delight. That's why Sinclair Ferguson says the, the, the barometer of a healthy church is the evening worship service. People come in the morning because they have to. People come in the evening because they get to. And it thrills me to see more and more people coming in the evening service. When we first started this some years ago, there were only 20 or 30 came. And gradually the numbers have increased, and it's such an encouragement to my soul. Um, we don't come because we have to. We come because we get to. Um, to hear God's Word, to meet Christ in the Bible. And then lastly, you know God is your portion when church is where you find your best friends. Verse 63, I am a companion of all who fear you of those who keep your precepts. That's not how the world makes their friends. The world makes their friends in terms of, do we have the same interests? Well, well, they do, you know. Uh, are you a sporty person who likes throwing balls and, and, and hitting things? Or are you a nerdy person who likes numbers and math and books, right? And we tend to, we, we make our friends by what interests us. Well, Christians do too, but we make our friends not by what interests us, not what interests us in the world, but we make our friends by the common interest of those who know God and are committed to serving God. Not how beautiful they are, how fun they are, but how godly they are. Which is like, remember in Psalm 16, as for the godly ones who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. And he's not, he's not picky. I'm a companion of all who fear you. It's almost as if he's saying, any friend of God is a friend of mine. Which is important because as new people come in here, 
And I, I do think we do fairly well at this, but when new people come into this church, or even new people come into the youth group, um, it's very easy to think to yourself, well, I've got my friends, I've got my social circle, and they're kind of over there, and I don't know them, and it's too much effort to go and talk to them, so we just let them go. No, they'll come into the church to see God, and we should, be, we should be warm and inviting to everyone who comes in here, either because they are saved, or maybe they could be soon. I'm a companion, I'm a friend of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. And again, notice here again the beautiful balance. It's not just those who are moral, they keep God's commandments, right? Those who fear you, there's always that personal aspect of piety. It's not just keeping rules, it's fearing God and, and ordering your life in a Godward direction. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. That's wonderful. The world is full of God, His goodness. And Lord, I'm so stupid and thick-headed, I need you to teach me the piety 101 again and again and again. And will your goodness be found everywhere else? And will you not be good to me and lead me in your ways and teach me, though I am such a dull-hearted and thick-headed learner? And the idea is, of course, of course you will. If God is so good in the world to create dolphins playing in the surf, won't He also teach you His ways if you ask Him? I love this psalm. It really is amazing. It's just a beautiful meditation on the healthy soul and His relationship with God and His Word. And His Word crops up everywhere, of course, because you can't have the one without the other. You can't get God back behind this book in this book that we find God. So, I close our sermon this evening asking you, is God your portion? So many people have different portions. Pleasure is the portion of some men and some women. They measure what they want in life as a good time. Ease. Don't bother me. Don't hassle me. Just, don't, just give me pleasure. For others, it's popularity. They want the smile of men. They enter a room of, of strangers at a party, and they're terrified that people will, will reject them. What do they think of me? Will they, re- will they like me? Will they reject me? And, and the, the, the pleasure, the, the praise of man is their portion. For others, it's profit, it's money, the bottom line. If I can have enough money, I'll be safe, and I can buy all the treasure I want, except, of course, the one treasure that matters. For some people, even um, their portion is orthodoxy. They love being right, dotting all their I's, crossing all their T's, more than they love God. But the psalmist could say, the Lord is my portion. Can you say that? Do you want to say that? And the amazing thing about the God we worship is that God the Father looked to God the Son before the foundation of the world. 
And he said, Father, my son, I want to give you these people to be your portion. But they're wicked people, and they hate us. They don't want us. They'd be quite happy to live forever in the world without us. But it would make them miserable forever. They'd find no true joy and happiness. And I made them to know the joy of knowing us. And they turned away from that joy. They've abandoned themselves to the darkness. And so, my son, to, so, that, so that we can make them our portion again, and they can make us their portion again, I want you to go down and become one of them. At the deepest possible level, connect yourself to them and take them as your portion and take all that belongs to them as, their portion, as your portion, which will mean that their sins will become yours. And you will die in the darkness of hell because of them and for them that we can make them our portion again. And I can give them to you for your inheritance again. And though we made them in our image, and we made them a little lower than the angels, and sin has left them little better than the devils, because of what you do for them, they will shine like the sun forever in, in our presence and be happy, eternally happy, when we make known to them life, and they find that in our presence there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Why wouldn't you want such a God as your portion? Only the madness of sin would make you to walk away from all that is in God out into the wilderness where there's nothing but darkness and death. Come to me, Jesus says. And let me set your head on straight. And let me give myself to you as your portion. There's no better way of living and no more comfortable way of dying than to have the God of life as your portion. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you, O God, for the wonders of your word, how they thrill our soul their wisdom, their balance, their proportion, and best of all, because we meet you in them. Draw near to us this evening, our Father, and let us with the Most High find shelter. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we finish our service of worship tonight, singing hymn number 211, God rest you merry Gentlemen.
And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit make your, make your soul like a weaned child on its mother's lap, that you might hope in the Lord and be surrounded by His peace and His mercy and His loving kindness now and forever until the day breaks and the shadows flee away. Amen. Thank you.